Thanks for listening to this message from The Block KC. The Block KC exists to help young adults build their lives on what counts. We believe that is Jesus and what God has revealed in His Word. We'd love to see you next Thursday, 7 p.m. at Lenexa Baptist Church. Now, let's listen to this week's message. Kansas City, how are we living tonight? Hey, if you've got a copy of God's Word, open up to the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Uh, for those of you who are new, we are so glad that you're here. My name is Nick Swearingen. I'm one of the directors of the Block AC. Uh, Joshua, if you're looking for it, sixth book of the Bible. You got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. That's where you're going to find it. As we get started tonight, since we've been talking about humility versus pride, and we've been talking about lying versus honesty, I figured I would just have something to share for both humility and honesty's sake. When I was growing up, I didn't do the best job of taking care of my teeth, right? Like, I just didn't always, I wasn't the model dentist patient like my older sister was. I'm not bitter, don't worry. Uh, Sometimes I lied about brushing my teeth or flossing. I would tell my parents I did. Thankfully, God protected me. I've actually never had a cavity, which is pretty remarkable for not doing that often. Sometimes I drank the mouthwash, Apparently, you're not supposed to drink mouthwash. Uh, I did that when I was a little kid, too. Like, it tasted good. Feels good to get that off my chest. Wow. My attitude towards dental hygiene completely changed when my sister started dating her now husband. See, my my brother-in-law, Drew, he was studying pre-dental when he was at K-State and carried floss around, like, sometimes on a keychain on his keys. Just... Had a little toothbrush in his backpack. In my mind, it's just way too extreme, way too into teeth. Until I asked him, why are you so preoccupied with keeping keeping your teeth clean? And this was a mistake to ask him this question. Because he told me, he's like, Nick, did you know that lack of dental hygiene, it can lead to a loss of appetite. It can actually lead to tooth pain, obviously. It can lead to sore jaws. It can lead to plaque buildup in your heart. The thing, though, that got me more than anything else was he said that a lack of dental hygiene can cause tooth decay. This was so gross when he showed me a picture of it. I actually had a slide, and some people from the team said I could not show the slide of tooth decay because it was so gross. So when I tell you you don't want tooth decay, just believe me, you don't want it. But it's essentially when your teeth rot away in your mouth as you are living your day-to-day life. They turn brown, they turn black, and they just slowly corrode over time. And this was pretty effective in getting me to wash my teeth. Brush my teeth. Wash my teeth. (laughs) Not drink mouthwash. Uh, And the reason I bring this up, right, is not because this is the Dentists of America Club, but because tonight we're going to be talking... That joke wasn't funny. I'm sorry. Uh, you got to own it if it's not. Tonight we're going to be talking about envy versus contentment. And what we're going to find is that envy actually causes us to rot away even as we go about our lives. There's a proverb in the Bible. It's in Proverbs 14.30. It says this, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Here at the block, we are concerned about helping young adults grow in your relationship with Jesus. This means that there are spiritual, communal, and even physical implications to growing in our walk with Christ. 
And spiritually, as we're going to find out, envy leads to bitterness. It leads to hatred. It leads to arguing. It leads to a severe disconnect with your relationship with God. Communally, envy leads to a lack of trust. It rots away at the bond between friends and family. Science has actually caught up to God's word here. Envy has a negative physical health effect. A team of researchers that was found at Ato University in Finland, they found that envy is processed in the head. And they found that when you are feeling particularly envious, it can cause your heart rate to increase. It can lead to shakiness of the hands. It can lead to nausea. It can lead to stress headaches. It can lead to a lack of focus. And it can even lead to depressive episodes. So when the Bible says that it will rot your bones, it's saying it will rot away at you spiritually, communally, and physically. Envy envy rots away at the core of who we are, even as we walk around our day-to-day lives. And contentment or gratitude, on the other hand, it's proven to be life-giving. A heart at peace brings life. And it's beneficial to our walk with God spiritually, communally, and physically. And here's the deal, y'all, right? Like, in our stage of life, in our culture, can we just be honest? There are a plethora of triggers to envy. We, we're going to watch our friends continue to get married and have kids, and we might not be at the same life stage. We're going to be watching coworkers continue to get promotions, move up in the company, maybe switch to different jobs that are more well-paying. We're going to see pictures of other people on our dream vacations or with our dream cars or with our dream dogs on Instagram. It's going to fill our social media feed. As we expand our, our social circles, as we grow, there's more and more opportunity to look at what everyone else has, compare ourselves to it, and envy what they have, what they're doing, the season of life that they're in, or who they are. And so what do we do? Right, that's the question. What do we do? If this is going to be a thing, we need to know how to combat this. Tonight, as we look at the story of Achan from Joshua 7, my prayer is that we would see the danger of envy. We would see the, the rottenness that it brings. But that we would also see how contentment and peace really do bring life. And ultimately, my prayer is that we would understand God can heal us of rotten envy. God can give us a fullness of life, but it's only found when we're content with God, what he gives us and the different things that we can use to bless other people. Let's take a moment, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we, we need you to show up tonight. God, would you open up our hearts through your word tonight? God, would your spirit be opening our hearts, God, to expose the, the rottenness that can be there? God, would you begin to remove the rottenness, God, even if it hurts, even if it's uncomfortable? God, we need your word to do this. God, and then as you, as you heal us, as we, as we seek forgiveness, as we seek repentance, God, would you protect our hearts? God, would you help us to find peace and contentment in who you are, God? And I pray that for every single person in the room, God, whether they have a relationship with you or not, God, would this be a time where they would see what a good and gracious God you are? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So context on Joshua 7, Uh, the Israelite people are going to conquer the land of Israel. They've been walking around the desert for about 40 years, and now they're on their military tour. And they are led by a man named Joshua. God has called them to go in. He's called them to destroy all the evil inhabitants of the land. I want you to settle it. And the first city that's up for conquest is a city called Jericho. 
Jericho had these massive walls, and God has promised that he's going to use the Israelites to absolutely destroy Jericho without the need for battle. He's going to miraculously deliver the city into their hands. And before this, he says, Joshua, I want you to go and tell my people just a couple commands that you need to keep in mind as I deliver Jericho into your hands. This is context for us as we talk about Joshua 7. This is Joshua 6, verse 17 through 19. The command is to shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things, make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Seems easy enough, right? Save Rahab the prostitute and everyone who's with her. She chose to trust in God and his power, and so she gets redeemed from the city of Jericho. Destroy everyone and everything else. Jericho was a city full of Amorites, incredibly wicked people. Uh, Their land was full of incest, it was full of violence, it was full of slavery, idol worship, you name it. It was a wicked, wicked place. God had actually given them 400 years to repent, but they continued on in their wickedness. And God said, finally, I'm not going to allow this. I'm not going to allow you to keep doing evil to each other and to your neighbors around you. And finally, take all the gold and the precious metals, set it apart for worship to the one true God. Easy, just those three commands. So what happens? The people, they march around Jericho, they shout, the walls of Jericho crumble, it's miraculous, they eliminate the city, the devoted things, Rahab, her family are saved, Rahab actually goes on to be one of the ancestors of Jesus himself, and she goes uh, to live in the tribe of Judah, Uh, the gold goes to the temple, the rest of the Amorites are terrified of the people of Israel, and the military campaign can begin, and it's a huge win. Right? It seems like that should be the end of the story. We shouldn't have to worry about anything else. They should just be able to move on to the next city. But there's rottenness in the camp. Joshua 7, 1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zarah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. One man. See something he likes, he takes it. All of Israel suffers. Make no mistake, y'all, sin is never only personal. Sin will affect every single person in our family and our communities around us, whether it's public or private. God becomes angry at Israel, and there's someone in the camp who has sin. Israel is one nation, they are one people. And we should see this as a sign of of God's holiness. God's gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, but he has a very high standard. And so this nation, it's just starting off, they're just getting off the rails. And it's a critical moment for the nation. Because if they're going to say, hey, we want to be like the Amorites, we want what the Amorites had, then they're going to end up being incredibly wicked in a nation that does not fear the Lord. A nation that does not bless, but curses. A nation that does not give, but takes. And so the question is, 
what is God going to do about this? What is the people of Israel going to do in response to this? To summarize the next couple verses, the people go on to A, and they lose the battle. The name of the city is A. Not just miss a word there. A. Multiple people are killed in this battle. Israelite people. They're incredibly demoralized. Joshua, he comes before God and he mourns. He, he asks God, why did you deliver us in Jericho and then only to seemingly and suddenly turn your back on us and abandon us? He falls on his face to pray, and that's where we're going to pick up in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. It's here that we get the first picture of envy. Envy secretly desires to take what belongs to another. Envy is when we look at someone else and we kind of think, I wish I had what they had. It's when we compare ourselves to other people and in our hearts we say, hey, they've got that job or that status, that relationship, and I deserve that because I'm, I'm better than they are. In our minds and our hearts, we covet them. We wish that we were the ones in their situation. It's the inability to rejoice on someone else's behalf for the good that God has done them. And we think, man, they don't deserve that. That should be mine. I want that. That belongs to me. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Uh, real hard pivot there. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Love Lord of the Rings. For those of you who have not seen the movies, here's a quick recap. Uh, evil ring created by Sauron. Frodo Baggins is a hobbit. He gets sent on a quest to destroy the one ring with his gardener, Sam. There's a uh, creature named Gollum. He used to possess the ring. He doesn't have it anymore. He wants it back. He's going to be used by Frodo and Sam as a guide. Ultimately, he wants to steal it and kill Frodo and Sam. That's the entire movie recapped. You don't need to go watch it now. Just did it for you. Just kidding. Go watch it. You can leave right now. Uh... The ring is devoted to destruction. Gollum wants the ring. He calls it his precious. It's, it's an obsession. And in his heart, the only thing that's going to make Gollum happy is if he possesses the ring. And you see him begin to hate Frodo and Sam. He's full of malice. He's full of envy. He's full of jealousy, bitterness. And it consumes him so much to the point that he dies trying to get the one thing that he envies. When we envy, we believe that if we had that one thing that someone else had, we would ultimately be fulfilled. Here's the issue, though. Most of us do not have Aiken's opportunity. Right? We're not going into cities and, and having these huge conquests, and we're not plundering things out of keeps. We're also not like Gollum. We're not going on quests through Middle Earth, right? But most of us, if we're honest, in, in today's world, we have something that we want in our hearts. And whatever it is, we're not going to be at peace until we get it. And, and maybe for you, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a relationship, whether that's with friends or a certain friend group, or maybe it's a romantic relationship. Maybe it's a job title or accolades at work. 
Could be money, vacations. Could be a season of life. Man, I, I just wish that I was married right now. Or if you're married in the room, man, I wish I was still single. Or I, I wish I was having kids right now. I would love that. I wish I was making more money. I wish I didn't have to spend so much time at work like that person does. Could be body image. Could be a car or a possession or a house. I think the saying that betrays us here is, man, I would kill for that. I would kill to have that kind of body. I would kill to be in a relationship like that. I would kill to have that kind of job. Right? And it's something, it's such a throwaway line in our culture. Right? It's, just, it's a, a phrase that we just say. But let's take a, a step back and examine what is at the heart of that statement. I would be willing to take someone's life to take what they possess. I would kill someone to make myself happy. And now, I don't believe anyone in this room would kill someone out of envy. But the Bible does say that on the heart level, hatred is the same thing as murder. Bitterness and resentment is the same as killing someone. So what happens when we envy, right? We build up resentment towards someone that has what we want. And we could argue that, well, I don't feel like it's a big deal. It's just in my heart. But secretly, we kind of wish, man, if I could make life just a little bit more difficult for that person, I, I would be happy because I don't have what they have. And they deserve to have a little bit of hardship. Our minds can create these fantasy worlds where we get to one-up whoever we're jealous of, where we get to take whatever we want. And it stays up here, but it's envious, and it's not loving we might do things externally to try to keep up with them or think I'm going to just outpace them and I'm going to keep comparing myself to them because I think I'm more important. We might overwork, have unhealthy habits so that we can just buy whatever they buy or, or look however they look. All right, we lower our standards on who we should date or, or how we should date because I need to have that kind of relationship to make me happy. I want, I want, I want my precious. And slowly but surely, it rots away our own joy, our friendships, our families, and our relationship to God. And we secretly desire to take what belongs to another. Just like Achan, he saw something that belonged to destruction. He saw an opportunity, and he took it. He took the devoted thing. And whether we take it in our hearts or whether we take it physically, it's envious. See, God had explicitly said, everything that belongs to the Amorites needs to be destroyed. All of the gold and silver, precious metals, those belong to me. And Achan in the camp of Israel, he broke faith with God. He stole what belonged to destruction and he stole what belonged to the Lord. He lies about it. He puts it in his own things and says, no, 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 this is mine. And as a result, there's rottenness in the camp. It infects the whole people of Israel. The people had been clearly told, if you envy, if you take these things, there is going to be trouble and you will face death. Achan chose to willingly endanger his own people 
because he wanted something that did not belong to him. And it's true for us today. The sin of envy, it never just affects one person. It affects everyone around us. God's going to tell Joshua, the reason why you were defeated at A is because of this sin. Joshua 7.12 says, Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have been devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. It's interesting to actually look at God's graciousness here. He protects Achan's identity. He could have just exposed the man in front of Joshua and the entire nation of Israel. But he actually gives Achan a chance to repent. So get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Consecrate means set apart, make yourself holy, repent. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Envy is rotting at the community of the people of Israel. They can't stand as one army until the devoted things are taken away. But God says, I'm going to give you the night. I'm going to give you the night to consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart. Whoever it is in that camp, Joshua would have told the entire nation, this is what we're going to do. And secretly in his tent or wherever he heard the news, Achan was faced with a choice. He says, tomorrow we're going to find out who took this. And Achan has the choice. Do I believe that my sin will be found out? Or do I believe that I can keep hiding it? God has a plan for kind of rooting out who the person is. He says, in the morning, therefore you shall be brought near by tribes. Uh, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And the tribe that the Lord takes shall come near by clans, smaller divisions. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. Didn't say he who's taken, who, what, who had taken the devoted things. It's he who has the devoted things now. Because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. God's going to slowly draw them out one by one. He's going to narrow down the people until the guilty man is found. And the picture is, at any moment, this person could repent. We, we know from God's word that God loves repentance. And what he's doing here by drawing out this process, he's giving Achan as much time as he can to come forward and confess. As much time as he can to say, hey, I took these things, I'm going to burn them. God promises that if we ever turn to him with repentance and humbleness of heart, He's a forgiving and gracious God. There's innocent blood on Achan's hand, and God is still willing to forgive him. And the question is, is Achan going to come forward and say, I envied, I lied, I stole, or is he going to hide it? Let's find out. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. You can imagine the whole tribe standing there, literally looking around each other, saying, it's one of us? And Achan is standing amongst the people. He thinks, there's no way that I'm going to get found out here. But then Joshua brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And suddenly, Achan's clan is taken. And there's a lot less people standing around him that can be chosen. And Joshua brought near the clan of the Zarahites, and Zabdi was taken. Now it's just Achan and his family. He's probably starting to sweat. But he doesn't come forward. 
And Joshua brought near his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zara, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. God uses the casting of lots, basically the rolling of die, to sovereignly show who the person was that had broken faith. And now Achan is standing all alone in front of the entire nation of Israel, in front of their leader Joshua, his conscience before God himself. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Slowly and surely, Achan is found out. He he secretly took these things and he envied them in his heart, but now he's exposed. He had his chance to repent, but it's not until he publicly was called out for his sin that he decides to try to own it. Here's the deal. Sin will always be found out. God will not be mocked. And God will always give a chance for repentance. But there comes a point where we're not really repenting as much as we are just trying to save face in front of other people. Achan has been caught in the ugly rottenness of envy. And look what he says. Verse 20, Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 20, or 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they were hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. I saw the cloak and the money. I coveted them. I wanted them. I took them and I hid them in the tent. I saw it. I wanted it. I took it. I hid it. Envy sees, envy wants, envy takes, and envy hides. It's the the progression of sin that we see as it pertains to envy. It begins in our eyes. It begins when we see something what we want. We see that car, that recognition at work. We we see how someone gets attention at, at our friend group or on social media or even maybe amongst church circles. We see someone's intelligence or someone's social aptitude or their body image or their stage of life. And our eyes become fixated on it. And in our mind, deep in our hearts, the lie is conceived. I need that. I want what they have. And it kind of starts off like nice, right? Like it's like, oh, that's nice for them. Like that, that... Good for them. That's, I'm happy for you. But then it slowly starts to grow as the rottenness begins to spread. And a comparison mindset sets in. Well, yeah, it's good, but but they're not like that great. I mean, I could probably do better than that. No, 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 in fact, I I could do better than that. And in fact, actually, I, I deserve that. I deserve what they have. That should be mine. I don't like that person. They're the worst. And it progresses in our hearts. And finally, it builds up so much that we have to take something. Right? And it might not be physically, but maybe we can't take what we actually want. But we can take away our friendship from that person by allowing bitterness and resentment to grow in our hearts. We could take away their reputation with gossip maybe badmouth them to the boss so they don't get recognized for another promotion. 
undermine my coworkers at work, undermine my friends in front of that person that I know that they like. I could take away my love for them. Maybe it's just something I'm going to take. I'm going to try to seize this from God's hand. That's something that only God can give, but I'm going to try to take it myself. I'm going to just outwork everyone else around me because I need to get what I want. I'm going to act like I'm way more righteous than everyone else. I'm going to act like the Pharisees did in Jesus' day and make myself out to be something I'm not so that I can get the recognition that I deserve. I'm going to spend money I don't have to keep up appearances. I'm going to bring unhealthy habits into my life so that I can get what I want. And we begin taking and taking and taking because we want what we see. And then what happens? We hide it, right? Because we're good civilized people, right? Like we're not going to do anything about this openly. I'm not going to go walk up someone and say, hey, I want what you have. Hey, I want that. Give it to me now. But we can hide it in our minds, we can hide it in our hearts. Like, it's not just a, it's just, we say to ourselves, it's not a big deal if I just let it grow in my mind. Like, I'm just going to live in this fantasy land where I have the things that I want. And then I'll be happy in my mind. I'm just going to live on social media, constantly checking this profile, constantly checking this thing, obsessing over what I think I deserve. I'm going to turn to pornography, or I'm going to turn to lust, so... I can get what I want. I'm going to constantly check my bank account. I'm going to constantly check my stock investments so I can see, do I have enough to buy what I want to make me happy? Do I, do I have enough to keep up with that person who has what I want? And we hide it away in our hearts and it turns to rot. And we grow angry and resentful and bitter and spiteful because that person who probably initially is someone that we love it's probably initially someone that we actually care a lot about. They have what I want. And because this feels bad, I don't, I, I don't want to envy my friends. I don't want to envy my family. We push it down and we hide it deeper in our hearts. But the rot just goes deeper. We just suck it deeper into our souls. I saw it. I wanted it. I took it. I hid it. See, here's the great problem with envy who decides what someone deserves? Is, is it me? Is it that person or is it God? Really, the mindset of envy is the attitude, God, you do not know what you're doing. God, you say that you're a loving father that sent your only son to die on the cross for our sins, for the ugly parts of my heart that are full of rottenness. You say that you give us an abundance of good gifts on top of that, but you're not really that good. You're not really who you say you are. You gave that gift to someone else and I wanted it. I think it belongs to me. I felt like I deserved it, God. And we end up profaning the name and the character of God when we allow envy to grow in our hearts. And we become so self-important, self-deserving, we elevate ourselves above others. I wish I could say I was free from this. But there's times where I look back and I think, man, I've been envying this person. I've been longing to have what they have instead of just celebrating what they want or what they have. And it's pride. It's self-idolatry. It leads to death. But here's the deal, y'all. It's not the end. All right? I know that's heavy and I know that's a lot, but there's a lot of hope. Because God always gives us an opportunity for repentance. 
So the beautiful thing about God, it's not too late. We can open up our hearts, we can expose the ugly, the rot, and we can ask God to clean us. God, I need you to make this area of my life new. I need you to enable me to live as the new creation who you say I am in Jesus Christ. I need you to give me a new heart in the first place. And God promises that he's going to do that. He promises that. Several years ago, I was helping my dad paint the house, which is just, in my mind, this stereotypical chore that your dad wants you to do. Whenever I'd ask my dad, is there anything I could do? Paint the house, mow the lawn. Finally, we end up painting the house. We find a few windowsills and planks on the house and wood boards that they were just rotten. When I walked up and I grabbed one, one of the windowsills literally fell away in my fingers because of the wood rot. And so I go find my dad and he said, okay, we need to go in and we need to cut out all these sections that have rot. All these sections that have been eaten by wood ants, all these sections that, that mildew and water has gotten into, that the wear and tear has destroyed the materials. And we're going to go in and we're going to take it out, cut it out, and we're going to replace it with something new. And so after multiple trips to Lowe's and back, we get everything plugged in, we get everything all prim and proper, exactly the way it's supposed to be. And then I'm thinking, okay, now we just go back to painting, right? Now we just paint right over it. And my dad says, no, 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 we need to make sure that we use a special sealant paint to make sure that this rot never happens again, to make sure that it's protected. Here's the deal. God can come in and take away the rotten areas of our heart. It's not hard for him. He's a powerful God. But we need a sealant to then protect us from further envy. We need something to protect our hearts, and this is where we talk about contentment. Here it is. Contentment sees what God provides and is satisfied with true life. Contentment, it's recognizing all that God has done. The heart that's content is constantly and genuinely overflowing with gratitude. You guys, you know the person that you're thinking of, that they're just so grateful to be alive. It's, you never hear them complaining. You never hear them comparing themselves to other people. You're like, why are you just so thankful all the time? Why are you so happy? And they're just like, man, God has just been good to me. And it seems kind of cheesy on the surface, and it seems kind of forced, but the more you look at it, you think, man, they're genuinely happy. Like, they're genuinely full of joy. They genuinely are thankful to God himself. They say things like, man, I'm so thankful to have a job. What a gift I'm so thankful for the friendships and the family that I have. It's a tough one I'm about to say right here. I'm thankful for the hard times that God has brought me through because it's grown my faith and shown me my need for him. I've heard that from multiple of you in the room. It's a beautiful attitude. Ultimately, I'm thankful that Jesus has forgiven my sins and I have new life. And then we're not just grateful for what God has done for us. We get genuinely thankful for other people, right? We just get genuinely excited when we see God giving gifts to other people. I'm so happy for my coworker that got that promotion. They worked so hard. And there's no comparison there. It's just honest recognition. It's not they got this and I didn't. It's just I'm happy for them. Man, I'm so happy for my friend who's dating. I'm so happy for my friend who's married, who's having kids. They're going to be a beautiful couple. They're going to be such great parents. I'm so happy for my friends who are single, who get free time and have opportunities that I don't have anymore. I'm told married people are not free from envy either. This attitude doesn't happen overnight, though. right? This is an attitude that's cultivated slowly throughout the progression of our lives. 
We continually, we see what people have, and in that moment, we have to make a decision in our hearts. Am I going to be grateful to God on their behalf and on my behalf? Or am I going to choose to envy? And here's the deal. If you've been living a life of envy, if you've been secretly in your heart wanting what someone else has, it's going to take some time to build that muscle back. It's, going to, it's not going to be an easy fix necessarily. It might take multiple weeks. It might take multiple months of diligent work. Things like journaling out things that you're thankful for to God. On your drive to work saying, God, I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for this. It might, take, taking a, it might mean taking a break from social media. Saying, I'm, just, I'm not going to get on it. It causes me to envy too much. I'm going to take a break from the internet. I'm going to take a, a break from regularly checking my bank account. Depends on whatever your thing is. But it, it takes time. If, if the muscle of contentment has been rotted away with envy, you have to slowly rebuild it and let God coach you through that. The Apostle Paul says contentment is a secret that has to be learned only through experience. But what happens when God does? He cuts out the rot and he begins to grow you in attitude. Here's what happens. It leads to life. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul says this, But godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Paul's saying, man, if I've got God, if I've got food, if I've got clothing, I'm going to be okay. That's all I need. I might want other things, but I'm okay with not having them. I'm okay with God giving them to others and not to myself. And this is where it starts getting fun. Right? This is where life starts to be joyful and, and the peace starts to lead to further fullness of joy and fullness of life. Because then we start realizing, man, if I only need these things that God is going to provide, then anything I have on top of that, I just have an opportunity to bless other people. I have as an opportunity to love the people I care about, to love and serve God who loves me. And suddenly we start asking questions like, man, how can I use my season of life to show love to God? How can I use my home, whether how big or how small or my apartment, how can I use it to welcome other people in and show hospitality? How can I use my position at work to build other people up and, and maybe help other people get jobs or encourage other people to get promotions if they're deserving? How can I use my resources to be generous and to bless other people? How can I use my time to go out and love the people in my community? And then not only are you free from the stress and the selfishness and the rot, the, the bitter anger of envy, but you get used by God to bring life into the lives of the people you love. Let me tell you, everyone loves that friend. I've got a couple of them that I just want to hang out with all the time because they're constantly being generous. They're constantly saying, man, I've got more than enough. Nick, how can I bless you today? I'm like, man, I don't deserve that. And it just leads to further love and it leads to further peace and further joy. I think we can all agree, those are things that if the world was more full of those traits, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, that would be a really beneficial thing for this world. That would be a really beneficial thing for Kansas City. That would be a really beneficial thing for this room right here. 
And you become satisfied with true abundant life. You don't need anything else. But here's the deal. It's a choice. God gives us that choice. He gives us the choice. You can repent of envy and pursue contentment just like Achan. He gave him the choice. He gave him the choice to repent. He gave him time to get rid of the devoted things. But here's the deal. Achan did not repent. Achan was found out in his sin, but by that time, God's salvation had passed. So Joshua sends messengers to Achan's tent, and they dig in the dirt, and they find this beautiful cloak, and they find the gold and silver. It's probably worth about $250,000 in today's money. And it's just hidden in the mud beneath Achan's tent. He never got to enjoy the things that he envied. Joshua and the people of Israel, they take Achan and his family. His family is probably complicit in hiding the stolen things. And they tell them, there's innocent blood on your hands. You have caused other Israelites to die. Now your life is the payment. And they're put to death in all of Achan's possessions. And the thing that he thought was so valuable that he wanted to take was burned with fire. It it seems so radical, but this is how we ought to deal with sin in our lives. We are called to repent. We're called to live as new creations and put sin to death in our lives. We're called to be radical in the way that we pursue Christ-likeness. Why? Not because we're trying to look like Pharisees or because we're trying to act like we have it all together, but because it leads to love and peace and joy. God knows it is good for us when we pursue godliness and contentment. And so here's the question for us tonight. How are you going to respond the next time you see something you want? If you've been sitting here tonight and you feel exposed the rottenness of your heart, what are you going to do about that? If you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, know that there is still time to, to repent and find forgiveness from sin. The shame and the guilt that you feel does not have to be your lot in life. That does not have to be your future. Everything that you've done, everything that you're ashamed of, everything that you're guilty of, that doesn't have to define you anymore. It can be wiped clean. You can be made new through a relationship with Jesus Christ, through believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised to new life, and you can be raised to new life with him. But you will not always have this chance. You never know how long you have on this earth. Delaying your decision to follow Jesus Christ is not worth an eternity of paying for your sins in the fire of hell. And that's a really hard thing to say But I do not want to see a single person willingly choose to pay for their sin without at least giving them the opportunity to respond and follow Jesus Christ. Eternity is far too long for that. And on the other side, the abundant life that you gain from knowing Christ and having eternity with him is so much more worth it than anything you will give up in this life to follow Jesus. Any reputation any comfort, any money, 
any status that you might have to give up to follow Jesus in this life. It'll be painful. It'll be hard. I do not want to sell you a false gig. But eternity is worth it. It's so worth it. Make the decision to follow Jesus. If you're here tonight and you are a follower of Jesus, here's the deal. There's forgiveness in God. There's not just one-time forgiveness. It's not just, okay, I had my sins forgiven one time. Now, if I sin, I'm left out to dry. God will blot out your transgression. He will continually make you clean. You have an advocate before the Father who is Jesus Christ. Here's what you do. Repent of envy. If you feel like that's in your life, repent. That's all you have to do. Tell God, I'm sorry. And you choose contentment. You choose to ask God to slowly train you up in gratitude and train you up in joy. Train you up to be a life giver. And you find and you give life to the full. In service to a loving and gracious father. And to all the people around you that you love and care about. The choice is yours. What are you going to do with it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have a choice. And God, I know left to my own devices, I'm going to choose sin. I'm going to choose envy. And God, there's parts of my life that I recognize I don't like. And God, would this be a place that's not found to be judgmental or not found to be like people have it all together, but it is a place where we can walk in godliness with contentment. It's something that, God, please just, would you make this a community of people that go out and spread life rather than desire, steal, envy, and take? God, would you please just help each one of us, God, to examine our own hearts. God, you say in your word to rend our hearts, to tear it open. And God, that's going to hurt, but you also say faithful are the wounds of a friend. And God, we know that you are our friend, and so just help us to examine the rot in our heart and like the gentle and loving God you are, would you come and would you cut it out of our lives? And God, it's going to hurt, but would we see your graciousness? Would we see your love? Would we see your tenderness, your compassion? God, would we be faced with the reality of eternity that hell is very real and it's a, a very painful way to spend forever. But on the alternative, abundant life is exceedingly good. To know you, God, is exceedingly good. God, we need you to show us these things, God. We can't teach ourselves this, God. We can't do these things in our hearts. So, God, as we sing, would you cement these hearts or these truths in our heart and in our minds? God, seal up our hearts to worship and abide in you. God, and if anyone in the room tonight, God, does not know you, God, would this be the night that they realized we don't know how long we have on this earth? God, I pray that you would burden them not to delay, but they would seek forgiveness and repentance through your son, Jesus Christ. We love you, God. Allow us to be people of contentment, peace, love, and joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.